particular section of Novum off with a small confession that I'm not embarrassed to make. It has to do with the game The Sims 2, which I used to be completely obsessed with during um, my elementary school years and because you could manipulate reality in so many ways in that game. I'm sure people who have played The Sims know what I mean. It's a way for you to become this puppet master of this world or a godlike figure. And one of the things that you could do in that game that departed with reality was to impregnate men. Because why not? I, I was fascinated with creating this world in which the rules of reality could be reconfigured. And reality seemed pretty restrictive while you're in The Sims. Why would you just do the normal thing that already exists in our worlds. And it, it, this kind of makes me think that in, in the struggle for equality, there is something that cannot be equal between males or and females. And that's the ability to grow another human internally and give birth to it. And some may call this a gift and others a burden. But what if it didn't half to be that way what if that divide what if it just wasn't there today i want to consider just one way that the world's rules could be reshuffled what if men could get pregnant and i'm not just talking about men taking on a feminine role or you know the twisting gender roles like you've seen in movies like Mrs. Doubtfire or Mr. Mom. This goes way beyond that. I have stories for you today that make you question the very divide of our society into males and females. If this idea of a pregnant man makes you uncomfortable, you are not alone. People have barely come into contact with this idea. And I certainly haven't, outside of Arnold Schwarzenegger's performance in the movie Junior, which is about a male scientist who impregnates himself. It's a very complex movie. We will be discussing this within the show. And that sight of a pregnant Arnold Schwarzenegger never leaves you. Over the next half hour, I'm going to convince you that the pregnant man is an important science fictional theme to consider. And stories with this theme, they do something brave in science fiction-y. They ask, why not?
to start off by talking about feminist utopias. In fact, feminist utopias are the antithesis of what we're actually going to be talking about today. But before we can talk about pregnant men, which I know you are dying to get into, we have to talk about where this idea originated in science fiction, at least. Do you remember how women have the mechanism inside of them to propagate the human race? Well, it turns out that that mechanism might do fine all on its own. At least a lot of science fiction thinks so. You don't know me. I'm not just one of your many toys. You don't know me. I can think of many novels and stories in which men are not in the picture. Either they've died of disease, uh, such as in Houston, Houston, Do You Read by uh, James Tiptree Jr., or they've been massacred by the women, and there are so many of these, including Hurland by Charlotte Perkins Gelman, or it, it could be a political arrangement that totally separates the two species, or excuse me, sexes. This particular case is in um, Glory Season by David Brent. But in each of these, you end up with this all-female society that looks like a utopia. It's relatively peaceful, there isn't slavery, and the civilization just works. Sometimes it works without any sort of political oversight. Kind of like these women don't need any sort of governance. It just works. And most importantly, these all-female societies have figured out how to reproduce. In, in most cases, it's a basic form of cloning. So you eventually, over the generations, have a society of women who all look similar or all come from the same original seven women. In other novels or stories, women develop parthenogenesis, a form of asexual reproduction that is a real natural phenomenon. Tons of different animal species, from insects to reptiles, consist entirely of female organisms, each offspring having only a mother. So there is a precedent for this idea. Now, parthenogenesis has not been observed to naturally occur in mammals, but there's research that suggests it could be induced most feminist utopias are written by females as a form of escapism from oppression or sometimes out of the need or desire to outline a world that they really believe could work better than the one th that they live in. But not all were written by females. David Brin, John Wyndham, and Philip Wiley are just a few of the exceptions. But where are the male utopias? You know, the ones where only men are left? One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. I'm just going to say it. These societies are not common in fiction. 
and they're kind of hard to find. Even though we might hear occasionally from men about how great it'd be if their wives disappeared and men were liberated to do what men do, and uh, the song I just played, Big Rock Candy Mountain, might be a kind of type of this utopia. But I don't think anyone would want this as a reality. Certainly not women, and definitely not men. Okay, we, we could go on and on about a speculative world, one in which all women die and only men are left, and it's likely we'd come up with a bunch of scenarios and some of them might make sense. And science fiction has covered a few of these speculative possibilities of an all-male society. And please remember, science fiction doesn't try to actually predict the future. It's just another tool to understand and reorganize the world around us. I'm about to share with you three stories, all from a span of just six years, from 1964 to 1970. Two were written by female authors, and one by a male. What we find in these worlds, it isn't incredibly uplifting. They all feature all-male societies, none of which can stand to stay all-male. I won't go in order. The first I want to talk about is Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. If you've read this novel, you might think, all-male? Uh, no. Basically, this novel is set on a world named Gethin, which is populated by a humanoid species that doesn't have our same recognizable sexes, like male and female. Everyone on Gethin is the same sex, which for our purposes is male. Actually, they're completely androgynous, but they appear male to the observer from Earth, and as the narrator, he gives them male pronouns throughout the text. The observer from Earth is on a mission to make first contact with the Gathenians, and he comes to learn about their strange sexual dimorphism. Once a month, every Gathenian enters a mating period called Kemmer, in which they become sexually receptive and develop temporary sexual characteristics. Two Gathenians match, one develops a male genitalia, and the other female. The one with female genitalia becomes pregnant from the ensuing encounter. But Gathenians don't stay female, which leads to quotes from the novel such as, the king was pregnant. And here it is, our first encounter with the pregnant man. And to read that line is very odd to most readers. It's very odd to the ambassador from Earth, yet it's totally normal to Gathenians. One person on Gethin might father a few children and give birth to a few more. This book, The Left Hand of Darkness, is all about challenging our perceptions of sex and gender. This is the first human society that the ambassador has ever encountered without the traditional male-female binary. And that's disturbing to him. But what's more disturbing? His way of life to them. He comes from a race that's always incomer sexually exaggerated. I'll let an abbreviated quote from Le Guin's novel, Do the Talking. And this is the ambassador talking after having spent a long time on Gethin. They all looked strange to me, men and women, great strange animals of two different species, great apes with intelligent eyes, all of them in red, in Kemmer. Does this book actually provide us with an example of the pregnant man? 
That's up to you when you read the book. I think yes. It's an extremely subversive novel and shows the male crossing over into the boundary of the female, occupying that role. My other examples are not going to be so pleasant to discuss. The Left Hand of Darkness is an exception, because while it shows a world without typical women, it hasn't fallen apart due to the lack of them. Because biologically, the, the woman has been retained in a way, although it's been packaged compartmentalized and only taken out in certain relevant situations. Really, there exists no culture of female and only biologically does woman exist. So men can become pregnant in the book and it's not thought of as weird. In other books, it's weird. Not for me. I could read about pregnant men all day long but it's weird for the men, and kind of agonizing. I want to mention a book written one year after The Left Hand of Darkness, and written partially in response to it. And that's Joanna Russ's The Female Man. The Female Man is usually read as a feminist utopia. It's one of the classics of this subgenre, much of it taking place in a parallel universe called Wileaway, which is devoid of men has been for centuries, and women live in a relatively peaceful, rational society in which they've developed homosexual reproduction. No problem. But also striking is the book's depiction of a world without women. The female man has its settings in multiple dimensions, which tell the stories of societies at different stages of feminism. In one, women and men have been become entirely segregated and they've been engaged in warfare for over 40 years. And in that time, the female side is stable. They have advanced technology and have mastered genetic manipulation. As for the male side, they also have genetic manipulation, but it's used for one purpose, to create women. Here's a quote from the female man. They've been separated from real women so long that they don't know what to make of us. I doubt if even the sex surgeons know what a real woman looks like. The specifications we send to them every year grow wilder and wilder, and there isn't a murmur of protest. I think they like it. In the isolated male society, or the manlanders, the men are driven crazy by this curiosity about what real women are like, since they've all but forgotten they feel this intense need for women to exist within their society. So out of the children they receive from the women, from trade, the manlanders surgically turn a few of them into transgender women. Unfortunately, these women are not treated so well due to the lack of understanding of what a two-gender society might look like. Russ doesn't posit the ideal idea of male pregnancy per se, but she does devise a possible scenario that could conceivably lead to it. She asks, how would a community of men propagate the species if women weren't in the picture? And can a society exist without women? There are certainly very few examples in science fiction of a society existing without women. And in most every one I've found, the men have created women where there are one. Almost like it's impossible to carry on with just men. 
I'm thinking of a short story by one of my all-time favorite authors, Cordwainer Smith. The story is called The Crime and Glory of Commander Seussdahl. And there's no way I can tell the whole story here because it is wonderfully insane, and you can read it pretty much for free online. But here's an extremely truncated version of the science fiction story from 1964. Commander Seussdahl is sent out to explore the outermost reaches of the known galaxy. He's in a deep cryogenic sleep when his crew of turtle people wakes him. The book is very strange. A message has been intercepted from this unknown planet called Ericosia. And upon first listen, it's a pleasant woman's voice who's asking for help. She says that the whole planet has succumbed to a sickness that kills their young, and they don't know what to do about it. So out of the benevolence of his heart, Suzdal decides to check it out. Unfortunately, the Ericosians have lied to him. What he finds there is horrifying to him. It's a world entirely without women. Because long ago in Ericosia, femininity became carcinogenic. Every woman and female began to die and develop extreme cancerous growths. And it seems hopeless. But long ago, one female scientist on Ericosia doesn't accept death so quietly. She decides to turn herself and all of the surviving females male. So everyone is administered huge amounts of testosterone amongst and uh, there are other genetic surgeries that go on. But the world is ends up completely male as a mode of survival. And before the scientist dies, she works out a system for men to become pregnant. And this, as Cordwainer Smith writes, is how. Little bits of the men's tissues could be implanted by a surgical routine in the abdomen, just inside the peri peritoneal wall. Crowding a little bit against the intestines, an artificial womb and artificial chemistry and artificial insemination by radiation, by heat, made it possible for men to bear boy children. These particular pregnant men are not treated so kindly by the author. They're described as sort of horrible creatures, very angry men wearing lipstick, and they, they are driven by this knowledge of what they've lost and this hatred of Earth or other human societies that are able to live on with this binary intact. But while our ideas about transgender men and women have evolved, the story is still relevant to our interests today. There still haven't been many other examples of a world with just men since. And if you have found more, please send them to me on my Facebook page. And Cordwainer Smith's story provides this semi-rational way for a world of men to survive. And moreover, a semi-plausible way for men to become pregnant. I really wonder whether the writer of the 1994 film Junior read this story. And here we are about to take a big stylistic detour. So ready yourself. The movie Junior starts out with a nightmare sequence about the fears of being ill-equipped for motherhood. It's pretty, pretty common stuff. Many women have similar nightmares. It starts out with one baby peeing or barfing or crying or generally being pretty overwhelming. 
And suddenly you turn around and there are babies everywhere, like 100 babies. The only difference? The person having this nightmare is Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, Dr. Alex Hess. He's a brilliant scientist whose grant for a new fertility treatment falls through. He's emasculated by this failure, and he's just about to take off for Europe to start over, when his colleague, played by Danny DeVito, intercepts him. He suggests that they should plant the embryo in Alex. I guess I was wrong about you, Hess. I took you for a scientist. I am a scientist. Yeah? Well, where's your vision? Jenner infected himself with smallpox to test his vaccine. That's Jenner. So why not you? Is it possible? Who knows? Natural? So what? Good science? You bet. Come and claim your place in the Pantheon. You're just trying to manipulate me. Yes, I am. I like how he uses this sort of masculine challenge to um, egg Alex on in this particular scenario. But regardless, Alex is convinced. And he is impregnated that very night. With the assumption that he'll only carry the fetus through the first trimester. And then their science will be done and he'll go back to his life as an ordinary male scientist. That night, Alex has another pregnancy dream of holding his child. And it's this freak child with his own face that's screaming mama at him. It's very disturbing. And soon Alex has morning sickness, his hormones are going crazy, and he's starting to show his pregnancy. But when the time comes to remove the baby, Alex refuses. He's grown attached to his budding motherhood. Over the course of the movie Junior, Alex becomes more and more undeniably feminine. And not surprisingly, it makes him irresistible to the female scientist from his university, Dr. Diana Redden. In the following exchange, Alex's budding femininity comes through. Dr. Diana Redding finds this extremely attractive. His colleague who is trying to keep the pregnancy a secret, interferes. You look so... I don't know. Enthusiastic. Yes, you do. You look positively lit up. What's the good news? No good news. Life. Music and friends. Frank's in the blankets. Um, I think we we should be going. We should go. Going, going, always going. And one day gone. Just like that. Maybe she be singing to hear the joyful melody of life itself. The implanted egg that Alex has used inside of his body is, to his surprise, that of the female scientist, Dr. Diana Rudden. And she's this brass, confident woman who kisses Alex on the mouth within three seconds of them having met. But in this scenario, she's turned into the unsuspecting father of a child. And she does not take this surprise very well. You lie to me, you you steal from me. You engage in an utterly immoral, selfish, arrogant stunt without any regard for my feelings whatsoever. What, what, What am I supposed to be grateful? 
This is just so male. I'm sorry, Diana. Just don't come near me. The last thing I wanted to do is just hurt you. What did you think you were doing? You think men don't hold enough cards, you have to take this away from us as well. Alex's doctor friend complains that so many women wish that men could experience what they feel. But when a man actually does, all women can do is complain. I think that this is a little unfair. It makes sense. Diana suddenly doesn't see what her role is in the world. Everything has been challenged about what she knows about motherhood. And she does wish to have a child, but she's not prepared for this particular role. I, I found her quote about that men already have everything and they need to take this from us very compelling because we don't usually think about pregnancy as something that men wish that they could have. In fact, we usually hear men who are grateful that they can't give birth. Diana's immediate response to hearing that Alex is pregnant, and especially pregnant with her egg, is that of anger and resentment and fear that this could just become another part of the patriarchy. When she begins to soften and accept this new role, she declares that I'm the mother, you're the father. Like she needs to remind herself of it to control the situation. Simultaneously, while Alex comes to terms with his role as a pregnant mother, we see Diana's parallel journey in learning to accept her role as a sort of father to the child. She, not he, gets the phone call to announce the coming of the child. And she rushes to the hospital and helps him through the birth. And Junior touches on many aspects of this incredibly queer, but also touching relationship. So they give birth. And when we next check in on the family, it's a year later. Alex and Diana are on the beach with another couple who also have a young child. Diana is pregnant this time, acting as the mother, while Alex has now assumed a more traditional father role. Diana asks the other female of the couple if she plans to have any more children. The woman responds, oh, I couldn't go through that again. Alex cuts in and says to the woman, it doesn't have to be you. The implications of this statement are huge. And they could possibly change the course of history, of gender relations, of all society. That either a man or a woman could equally get pregnant? Just imagine. You could see Earth change into a place, eventually, very similar to Gethin from Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness. You could see the kings of Earth getting pregnant as a status symbol, or to bear a child of their own body, as in the left hand of darkness. And maybe in a far-off universe, it wouldn't even be that big of a deal. Now, the movie Junior doesn't take full advantage of the gravity of this statement, and I'm not sure I'd recommend it. I did enjoy it. But much of what happens in the film unfortunately happens in secret, and the world is for better or for worse, left unchanged. So what does the pregnant man mean? What does it signify? Well, it means different things in different stories. Sometimes it's just used for shock value. 
but I think it's mostly used to challenge our notions about how the world should work, to question our basic assumptions. And I think the fact that women can get pregnant and not men is a pretty basic assumption. And more importantly, it asks, why not? The pregnant man exists in science fiction as a form of novum, or a new thing, something that makes a speculative world different from our own. But as it turns out, not that much difference. In 2007, a transgender man named Thomas Beatty became pregnant. His wife at the time was infertile, so he made this choice. He was quickly named the pregnant man by the media, and he's since given birth to three children. You might have seen his picture on the internet. A bearded, typical-looking man, but pregnant. In my mind, the pregnant man goes beyond the relative gender fluidity of our modern society. And it at once justifies the necessity of having women in society, biologically, and questions the need for a cultural femininity. Science fiction stories both show the wretchedness of all male societies that can't devise an artificial woman or male pregnancy, but it may also show the irrelevancy of women within a society that can. Just a few questions I want to leave you with. Do you think a movie like Junior upholds the patriarchy or demolishes it? What about Le Guin or Cordwainer Smith? I think this topic may ask more questions than I've answered during this half-hour segment. But I hope it gets you thinking, because it does ask quite a few interesting questions. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to especially thank Christopher McIntyre, who wrote all of our music for today's segment, and Cheryl Brigham for making our excellent graphic for this week, which you can view on our Facebook page. And our Facebook page is facebook.com slash novumpodcast. And if you go onto our Facebook page, you can access old episodes, such as one about the idea of the sleeper, time travel without a time machine, and one on the invasion of Earth. And you can find all that on our Facebook page, and I'd love to hear from you if you have any comments. And I will see you next week on Novum. Novum.